Hello. Hey, how are you? Hey, I am good. Today we are recording a double episode, and so whatever I said last time, I'm just as good as that. How's that? That's great. You know, I was just thinking the exact same thing. I was like, oh, I don't know what to say, because I said how I'm doing in the last episode we recorded, and I don't have anything else to say. I'm good. So, huzzah for that. <laughs> right. Okay. Introductory chit-chat over. What'd you call for? All right. Um, first of all, I'm laughing really hard because that was a beautiful and very elegant transition. And <laughs> second of all, I am calling a good friend of mine who frequently says these profound comments in the middle of conversation that I need to just pause and think about. Uh, so clearly said, not me. Said, um, no. <laughs> um, I, I wasn't sure. I don't know how to be nice in that situation. Um, Proceed. But uh, yeah, he's just, my favorite thing about his preaching is getting to talk to him about his sermons when he's not preaching. Mm. Because you've heard the the saying, preach from the overflow. Have you heard that idea? Yeah. This guy does it. And he does it every time. And so there's always so much depth and the behind the scenes look at what he's thinking about in conjunction with the text that doesn't even make it into the sermon is always extraordinary. Mm. Uh, and so he said in the middle of a conversation we were having a couple of weeks ago, you know, we as a church just idolize leadership. And then he just went on with his thought that he was thinking about something completely different from that. And I have been thinking and wrestling with and evaluating this very profound, very incisive, and very challenging thought. And so that's what I want to talk about. The question on the table is, do we idolize leadership? Hmm. I'm really intrigued by what is meant by the word we, because... I think there is like this overarching church culture in America. There's also like the historic church. There's the people in the pews. Is that the we or is it church conferences? Like to the best of your knowledge, because you're not the one that said that, but like what's the we that we're targeting here? Well, I will say from this point on, I am not going to refer back or try to infer what he was trying to say. I'm not going to speak for him, but I will say for myself, the category of people I want to talk about and ask the question about are the people we refer to now as church leaders. In the past, they would have been called pastors or deacons, but today we broadly take these two tiers of leadership in the church. There is the pastoral leadership, and then there is the next set of leaders underneath them. What I, in my context, we call ministry leaders. This is the person who's in charge of a team. And we sort of acknowledge that what we are looking for out of all of those people is the capacity to lead other people. And so I'm asking, do we, the category of people that are actually called church leaders today, is the fact that the word leader is in the category title an indicator of the fact that we have prioritized leadership as a value 
over other values in a way that we shouldn't. But I am specifically talking about we who seek to be good church leaders. Does that answer that question? It does. And it's still, it's a really interesting question to wrestle with because leaders have to lead, right? That's just, it's inherent within the role, whether you call them a pastor, elder, lay leader, ministry leader, whatever. Titles aside, we need those people to lead and to lead well and to lead effectively. So this is not one thing is good and one thing is bad. It might be a matter of degrees. It might be a matter of where we place our emphasis rather than this is a good thing and this is a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. The word leadership or leader is listed in the Bible as one of the spiritual gifts, right? If it is leading, then lead with zeal is, I think, what Romans says. But yes, it is this question of emphasis that is exactly what's on my mind. Because if you call somebody a pastor and you are encouraging other people to step up and become pastors, then what you are expecting of them becomes one thing by definition. You know, you said, obviously, no matter what we call them, what we're expecting them to do is lead. But I don't know that that's true. I think the language we use to describe the people we're talking about determines the values and virtues to which we give primacy, right? If I'm talking about pastoring, I might say, who are the spiritually mature people here? Right. For example, if somebody has their MBA and has been working in a business context for 25 years, becomes a follower of Jesus, and still has all of that leadership skill set, they come in and suddenly they can kind of leap frog the system and become a leader in the church because they are gifted leaders, even if they are not spiritually mature. Yes. And it's that kind of CEO mentality, a leader of an organization mentality that is new to the church in the last, I don't know, 50 years. And mm -hmm. not quite the way that it was once constructed. Now, Again, we might be talking about a matter of degrees because there's there is benefit to that in some respects, especially as you deal with larger and larger churches across the country, you need a more scaled approach to managing what is I know it's a crass word, but it is still an organization and it has to be managed well. Um, well, and and I'm curious the degree to which our emphasis on leadership has then given rise to a particular approach to church that then does self-reinforcingly require an emphasis on leadership, because now we've created organizations that required leadership. But I'm wondering if we we built those organizations thinking about a particular thing, and now we're in a sort of self-reinforcing cycle. I'm not saying that's true. I just think it's one of the questions that's interesting to me. Well, sure. And, you know, one of the things that I think the CEO model, I don't know that it requires, but it certainly pushes the church toward this model. And Sky Jathani wrote a great book called With, and he talked about mm. different postures that we relate to God through them. Our lives are meant to be lived for God or 
our lives are lived from God, like we just attract all of his blessings, or we live a life under God, and we, we see things in simple cause and effect terms, like I do this, then God's supposed to show up and do his part. But one of the things he says is we also tend to live a life over God. And he describes that life this way, which I think is really fascinating, where the mystery and the wonder of the world is lost as God is abandoned in favor of proven formulas and controllable outcomes. It's that proven formulas and controllable outcomes that every business leader and CEO is shooting for. And when we apply that model to the church, there's a lot of benefits to it, but the inherent danger of it is that we are seeking to look for that repeatable, controllable outcome. And I don't think that's how God works. And even if we have somebody that has talented at establishing controllable outcomes, it does not mean that they necessarily have the character requirements to lead a church or be a pastor or what have you. Well, and before I even think about that, I want to make one caveat that you know, but I want to make sure everybody else knows. And that is that I am not a contrarian in the realm of leadership. I buy every single year the Harvard Business Review best of the year book to tell me what Harvard Business Review is thinking about this year. I absolutely love Craig Grishel's leadership podcast and try to catch every single episode. I deeply esteem the folks who have challenged the church to think well about leadership. I've read John Maxwell. So I would point to John Maxwell's publication of 21 Laws of Leadership as the tipping point moment for the church. I don't know if that's accurate, but in my personal experience, that was the moment. And I've Hmm. read that book probably five times. Hmm. And I think it's brilliant. And I suspect not a week goes by that my life is not influenced by it. So I have incredible respect for Maxwell, Grishel, all those kind of folks. I am indebted to them for my ministry. I am passionate about measurable outcomes and metrics and all these kinds of things. So the conversation I want to have, as you alluded to at the beginning, is a conversation from within, not an outsider critiquing, but an insider starting to ask some questions that I want to wrestle with, one of which is this idea of to what degree are we making room for God, for wonder, for the supernatural, if it's about processes and organizational programs and those kinds of things? And again, like I, I hear my own self-critique in this because if someone were to say about their sermon, I'm making room for God by studying less— I would never want them to preach in my church ever again. <laughs> right. And so I am for all of those things, but it makes me wonder. And again, to highlight this, this is a real text I got this week. Someone who is a leader in their church, it's a church that I know really well, they texted me and said, hey, our church has lots of urgent needs, but what do you think? Do you think we need immediately need to focus on people who are administrators and raising that up and getting those in place? Or do you think we need 
to focus on people who are pastoral and getting those people in place and raising those up. And I think the answer depends on whether you perceive the church to be an organization or not, and what you think of leadership in the church and how it needs to function. Yeah, that's such an insightful question that somebody would raise, and I imagine it's raised in many church contexts. You have to have wrestled with this over 20 years of pastoring slash being a church leader. How did you understand your own calling in light of both being a faithful steward of God's word and faithfully pastoring people, but also leading an organization. And you kind of had to split your attention in those different directions. And so how did you put those various pieces together? So interesting. So the only way I could put these together for myself was to believe that in managing people, I was actually intentionally developing people in terms of their whole selves. So if I'm having a one-on-one, which again, business and leadership language, if I'm having a one-on-one with someone who reports, again, directly business language to me, I am deeply indebted to the folks at Manager Tools for how to do a good one-on-one. And I have for many, many years followed their basic formula and it's brilliant. But one of the ways I will not follow their formula is that they say one-on-one should be about 30 minutes, and I always make them an hour. And the extra time is not about what tasks need to get done. The extra time is me listening well and helping develop you as a person, whether that means let's have a conversation about your marriage, let's have a conversation about your boundaries, let's have a conversation about your spiritual habits, let's have a conversation about whatever, I don't care. I want to see you growing as a fully orbed human being who is surrendering all of who you are to Jesus. And if there's time left, let's talk about your role. Mm. And my job satisfaction as a pastor is directly tied to the degree to which I was able to have those conversations relative to the amount of time which was taken up by scheduling things in planning center and filling slots, and getting people in the pipeline, and all of those kinds of tasks, all of which, again, very, very necessary. But if my time was consumed by those program things, my job satisfaction diminished tremendously, because I don't think that those develop people, unless you do them radically differently. And at the end of the day, all I want to do is develop people. Which is probably why this quote resonated with me so much. I'm not interested in building an organization. I'm not saying the church should not be led by people who want to build an organization. I have no interest in evaluating somebody else's calling. That's not my job. But I am saying I want to develop people, not programs. Yeah. Well, that resonates with a conversation I had with Dean once upon a time, and he used to be a worship pastor. He was a worship pastor for like 25 years. In fact, I went to his church where he was a worship pastor, and that's where we first got connected. And he was a phenomenal worship pastor, but he was a pastor first and a worship pastor or a musician second. 
And it naturally led to when he left that church and God called him to be a senior pastor, he found that he had been doing many of the things necessary to be a a lead pastor simply because he was a pastor first. He cared about people. He cared about bringing people into God's presence to interact with God himself. That's what mattered to him in his role. And so I think if you have, I don't want to overemphasize the word pastor by saying this, but if everybody on your staff is a pastor first and a fill-in-the-blank second, leader, administrator, musician, whatever, I think we're a little bit closer to the ideal, is my opinion. I think this is exactly right, because frequently people get put in roles because of their skill sets with administration or music or whatever. And I I don't have a specific person in mind here, but going back to my imaginary MBA person, that person could be hired onto the church staff six months after starting their relationship with Jesus and could really help the church be administratively gifted. And so many churches have to distinguish between organizational or administrative roles and pastoral roles. And that may be a concession to efficiency. We want to get where we want to get as soon as we can get there. And in order to do that, we need these particular skill sets. And so we're going to put the people in those roles, whether or not they're spiritually ready, because they're not, it's not a pastoral role, so it's okay. And as you have gone to various pastoral conferences over the years, is that the theme? Is that what they're teaching you? Or are they trying to build your character and build your relationship with God such that you can minister out of the overflow, as you described this uh, other individual? I think it depends on where I look. Generally speaking, what I remember of these conferences, and it's been a couple years, so I may be speaking with old data, and that's always annoying to me. People <laughs> do that. So I acknowledge that I got tired of going to Christian leadership conferences several years ago, and I was just done. But I think they are organizational how-tos. There is always a nod to character. There's at least one session that's about character. And I will say... The most recent one that I went to that was a church leadership conference actually was this last March, and it was my own movement's church planting conference, the Church Multiplication Network. Yeah. And I will say it ended with a bang, and the final guy spoke almost entirely about character, and he was not the only one. Mm. Uh, So it was how to live out your character. Like it was very practical, but he was one of two speakers that I can think of that really talked about how to be the person you want to be so you can do what you want to do. And I think that that's really important. And maybe the challenge here is that leadership is wildly important, but leadership should never be an excuse for prioritizing doing over being, performances over people, or programs over people. 
You know, it's interesting as you're talking about this, I'm realizing that we make an assumption in a lot of different realms of pastor training. We make an assumption that anybody going to seminary has somehow figured out the character piece elsewhere because seminaries train their people how to think theologically and evaluate the text well, how to preach, knowledge about church history, Greek and Hebrew, these sorts of things. It's not generally geared toward character development. And you're saying that many church leadership conferences, again, make the assumption that character has been learned and emphasized elsewhere. And what we're doing is taking theologically trained people with a high degree of character and teaching them how to lead organizations, assuming that that is not the skill set that they brought to the table. What well, we've not done— Which is not what the news headlines would suggest to us. Right, right. That's true. Um, but what we've not done is anywhere in the church assumed we made a false assumption, and, and we really need to emphasize character somewhere. And that there needs to be a really good training and or proving ground of character before we even consider somebody for leadership. And mm. I think that's what, you know, passages like Timothy and elsewhere, Timothy, Titus, that really talk through the characteristics necessary, the character needed in a leader helps us correct and say, wait, we have to start here. We have to start with who this person is at a deep level before we ever theologically train them or train them to be organizational leaders or whatever. And I would suggest that developing an individual person's character is not something that can be done on a reproducible model. Mm. I do not think character is developed through curricula or programs. Character is developed through one-on-one deep involvement in another human being's life to such a degree that you have earned the right to speak into their lives on challenging things and have them trust you, and that you know which challenging things to speak into their lives. You know, I just finished up my final mentor meeting with somebody that I've mentored at my old church for a year. And we met every other week for uh, at least a year. And he asked me, which was a great question, though it was a hard one to answer. As we're getting done, final meeting, he said, what's the one piece of advice you would want to give to me? Mm. And I had dozens of conversations to build that out of. And to be honest, my biggest answer was, I've given you all the advice I have to give you because I've walked with you through a variety of issues, and not that I've done the greatest job in this. I could have been more invested in his life in a dozen different ways, but sitting down and having breakfast twice a month at least gave me the view into his life that I'm not speaking generic truths into his life. I'm speaking into his personal experience and my knowledge of how he's going to respond to his personal experience. Hmm. which it took me in my in my walking with him months to feel ready to say anything. Of course. I mean, I spent the first three to six months just saying, so tell me about what's going on in your week. And for those first six months, I genuinely walked away thinking, huh, 
I bet he doesn't feel like he's getting mentored. That's interesting. <laughs> um, but that's okay. He wanted, the first question he ever asked me was, how do I mentor somebody? And the first thing you do if you're going to mentor somebody, actually get to know them really, really well. Yeah. And I'm not sure any of that is reproducible in an organizational systemic, all those things you said about the Sky Jathani book. I think it was a quote. Yeah. It isn't any of those things because what you need to do with me and what you do with somebody else, I mean, the only organizational or systemic approach you can take is spend lots of time with them and be wiser than them. That's the entire heart and soul of, of good discipleship, right? Of character yeah. development. Yeah. So maybe that's just the missing piece. Like we have made an idol out of leadership. We have elevated it. I think it probably started with something similar to what I said earlier. Hey, we've got a bunch of theologically trained people with a high degree of character and strong relationship with God that we need to train on how to lead organizations because that's the missing piece. So let's teach them how to do that. And then it just kept continuing and it snowballed to a degree that now we have made leadership prime and we have forgotten that we need good character and solid relationship with God evident in this individual before we ever promote them to a position of leadership at all. Well, and, you know, to tie this back to the great commandment, because so often that's what we end up doing. Yeah, we need to help them learn to love God and love others. And we need to be actively loving God and loving others, kind of in this one-on-one -on -one space. And that is not something that's going to happen in a seminary or a classroom or anything like that. Yeah, so I'm going to make a bit of a shameless plug here. I talked with a pastor friend of mine a number of, well, this person has said this on a number of occasions. And they said, listen, unfortunately, the search committee really didn't know what they were doing. The search committee should have asked me a lot of different questions that never came up. And given my story and given where I've been, should have come up. And they just didn't do it because they didn't know how. And in a Baptist context, there isn't a whole lot of training for what a search committee should be looking for or how to go about it or anything like that. So if you or anybody you know is in the hiring process for a pastor, regardless of their role, consider sending them this episode. Just something to think about, something to evaluate their candidates and make sure that character and godliness are a piece of what they're asking and looking for. That'd be my ask. Yeah. Well, and, and what a good question to ask in that context. Who has been the most influential recent mentor in your life? And what's his or her phone number? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And why didn't you give it to us when we asked for references? Uh, assuming they didn't. Well, yeah. Uh, exactly. But well, hey, in addition to sharing this conversation, we invite you to uh, join us on Facebook, Instagram, and threads. Let us know what your thoughts are. How does it work in your context where you are? Is leadership overemphasized? Is it underemphasized? Do you wish your leaders knew a little bit more about leadership? Or do you th wish your leaders knew a little bit more about having a faithful relationship with Jesus? Or are you a leader struggling to balance these things out? Uh, we would love to hear from you. Come join the conversation. 
Yeah, absolutely. But you know, that's that's what I've been thinking about. What about you? What have you been thinking about? Yeah, so I was intrigued this week as we read Psalm 119, because Psalm 119 is this kind of ode to God's word. And every single, you know, eight verse segment starts with the same Hebrew letter. Uh, so every line of the first eight verses starts with Aleph, and then first line of every next eight verses starts with Bet, and on and so forth. Well, I've perceived in the past, everyone is kind of the same, kind of similar, and it just all points back to how great God's Word is. Mm. I, I think on some level that's true. It's an oversimplification for sure. But here's what I was intrigued, and I evaluated the text as I read it through this lens. Is this in some way idolizing the Bible? Does this passage, this great long poem, idolize scripture over and above God? And I think that it's easy to do, especially, like I said, Baptist circles, we, we have a high degree of uh, reverence for God's word. And it's easy to slip into idolizing the Bible over the God of the Bible. And I wondered if the psalmist had accidentally made that mistake. And so I evaluated as I read through it, and I went, you know what? The psalmist actually talks way more about God than he does God's Word. And this is supposed to be this massive poem that that celebrates God's Word. Uh, but it is celebrating the God who speaks and the words that come from the, God's mouth. It is far more about God than it is about God's Word, as we would call it, Scripture. So I was really impressed, actually, and find it a good corrective to some of my brothers and sisters in Baptist circles to say, wait a minute, we gotta, we got to remember that we're worshiping the God behind the Bible, not the Bible itself. That's really good. I, I would love to have a conversation sometime and, and about— what the phrase the word of god means in the bible yeah because that, yeah, that's correct. interesting it is and i found myself thinking you know especially in that lens uh as i was reading this text there were so many times that god's word or god's promises or whatever was used by the psalmist and i was like i don't know that he has the written word in mind when he says that I think sometimes he does, but there are other times, I mean, it's he's almost speaking about the very words of God coming from God's lips, which is different yeah. than reading the written word. Mm -hmm. It is a broader category that overlaps with the Bible, but is not the same as the Bible. Mm, yes, well said. Right? And I would love to tease that out sometime because there's this has been a giant question of in theological circles for many years, whether the Bible is God's Word, whether the Word of God is in the Bible, right? There's different ways to think about it, and, and I think it's an important theological question. But, you know, yeah. it's interesting, you mentioned Psalm 119, of course, as our major reading point for this week, but my thought is also from Psalm 119, 
And this was my first time ever reading Psalm 119 more or less in one sitting. I just decided I was going to do the whole reading of Psalm 119. It really was two sittings during one day, but I had never read it all in one shot. And Mm. I was very curious to do so because sometimes you get a very different vibe from reading the whole thing. Yeah, I tried to do the same thing and I couldn't make it. So um, yeah, I'd love to hear about your insight. Well, and I'll be honest, I, I it was ended up being two sessions instead of one session because I may have fallen asleep during the first session. Um, <laughs> Same. So, you know, uh, so thank you, God, for your inspiring word that, oh, well. Um, but the thing that really struck me was how different each segment is. There is a significantly different emotional tone in each one. It really felt like the sort of when you shine light into a prism and then it sends the rainbow out. Mm. It felt like the the refracted beauty of the main theme, which I think you're right, was the love of the word of God and behind that, the love of the of God himself or, or whatever, however you want to phrase that theme. And I'm not really interested in trying to capture it. I'm just more intrigued by the ways in which in positive and negative moments, in moments of fulfillment and moments of longing, in moments of youth and moments of age, in moments of struggle and moments of joy, this psalm approaches that same theme but from all these different angles. And it really was intriguing to read. Yes, I agree. There is a lot more diversity in the tone and the feel of this, uh, in the various sections of this psalm than I had approached it believing. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for summing up my 10-minute spiel in about eight seconds. That was exactly what I was trying to say. <laughs> That's called um, active listening. You know, I'm, oh, I'm yeah, engaged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's all right. Yeah, yeah there you go. Good stuff. Uh, but, you know, so let me let me now transition us from there to this week's exciting Witch Josh question. Uh, okay. This is a, a perfect Witch Josh question in so many ways. But for all of you historical baseball fans out there, uh, Witch Josh went to Bush Stadium in 1998 during Mark McGuire's record-breaking 70 home run season. Yeah. And despite the fact that you are Josh from Missouri, this is me, Josh from Oregon. This is going back to, we had moved across the country and we lived for a short time in Collinsville, Illinois, which is just on the other side of the river from St. Louis. And a number of people in our church were huge Cardinals fans. And Bush Stadium was a hopping, energizing place to go because, one, the Cardinals are perennial postseason favorites. I mean, they're just, they're almost a lock to get into the postseason every year, except this year. Um, and that year was so exciting because you had Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa just hitting bombs and doing something that baseball hadn't ever seen. And uh, yeah, so I got to go and it was so thrilling. In fact, every time Mark McGuire got up to bat, 
you could actually just watch this wave of flashbulbs happening all across the stadium because everybody was wanting to capture that historic moment of hitting the next home run. And it was just jaw-dropping and exciting. And I'm so thrilled as a baseball fan that I got to live that part of history because, you know, people talk about, oh, I was at such and such a game or I was at such and such an event. And you just kind of go, oh man, only if only I could be alive when you were, whatever. But this this is a little piece that I get to claim and it's pretty awesome. That's amazing. You know, you are leaving a key detail of the story out and I oh. don't know if that's intentional or not. What was the key detail? Did he hit a home run? Do you, okay. <laughs> That's such a horrible question to ask me. I don't remember. <laughs> I'm assuming I can't not. Say I would either, but. Um, oh, man. I'm assuming not because I don't remember. I think I would have remembered if he did. That makes sense. That, that oh. took a great story and just ended on such a horrible note. I'm sorry. I, I mourn with you. <laughs> um, I, I was also actively listening and sometimes active listening means you listen to what's not there. Well, you're just throwing that active listening thing right back at me. Yeah, I am. Uh, okay. All right. All right. Uh, how about I'll get even <laughs> next week when we talk again. All right. That sounds great. I'll talk to you then. Okay. Bye. Bye.